I'm Bill Bubert, retired Army officer and a regular warfare practitioner and scholar. Welcome to Chasing Ghosts and a Regular Warfare Podcast, the show that examines the mythos, lost history, bad thinking, martial malpractice, and government incompetence that informs so much of a regular warfare. I want to peek behind the curtain at the vast machinery and briar patch politics of insurgency and counterinsurgency and everything in between. Now, let's go ghost hunting together. This is Bill Bupert, and welcome to episode 30 of Chasing Ghosts in a Regular Warfare podcast. This one is entitled U.S. Military Special Operations Forces, U.S. Army Special Forces. I have a cautionary preamble, and that's this. I'm going to make some complaints, and I'm going to make some recommendations on how to revitalize the Special Operations Forces and the Special Forces in particular in the U.S. Army in a future episodes when I tackle each of these respective SOF organizations in the Western Table of Organization of Equipment, especially for the American Armed Forces, vanilla, of course. I am an alumnus of the now-defunct 12th Special Forces Group in the Reserves. As an 18-echo communications sergeant candidate, I chose not to go to the SF qualification course because I was also offered a commission in the U.S. Army at the same time. I chose to go to the dark side and leave my enlisted and NCO roots in both the Navy and the Army to pursue a commission in the U.S. Army, thinking that not getting a commission in the U.S. Navy would make it so my deployments were less numerous and less hazardous. Of course, my career in the military, as middling as it was, proved Otherwise, after a stint as a combat arms guy in the illustrious 101st Airborne Division, I went to the military intelligence course at Huachuca, and I won the lottery in the U.S. Army at the time, and I became an MID commander, military intelligence detachment commander, and the S-2 for a forward-deployed SF battalion, 1st the 1st, in Okinawa, Japan. So I sort of, like, steeped and saturated in the ranks and culture of SF, so I think I can speak with some authority to that from an herbivores perspective. The carnivores, of course, are the guys who are tabbed in actually 18 series MOS. So a caution, I will say things that will hurt people's feelings and not get me invited to the Irregular Warfare Institute at West Point. Let's get some details out of the way to better flesh out what these organizations are, who they are, and who staffs them. So in 1957, the two original Special Forces groups, 10th and 77th, were joined by the first SFG, my alumnus, stationed in the Far East. Additional groups were formed in 61 and 62 after JFK visited the SF at Fort Bragg in 61. The 5th Special Forces group was activated in 61, 8th in 63, 6th in 63, 3rd in 63. In addition, there have been seven reserve groups. I mentioned 12th was the one that I was a member of. And four National Guard groups, 16th, 19th, 20th, and 21st. Since that time, 16th and 21st Special Forces Group have been decommissioned. But 19th and 20th Group, as I mentioned in previous episodes, while National Guard, which is notionally reserved by state, have been the highest staffed of all the Special Forces organizations throughout the turbulent times of the last quarter century. Now, of course, you had a a 4th, a 14th group, 15th, 18th, 22nd, and 23rd. Those were in existence at some point. They are no longer in existence. 
So many of these groups were not fully staffed at all, and most were deactivated around 19. Before 2014, a special forces group, think of it as a regiment, comprised three battalions, but since 2014, they've tried to augment them with four battalions. You're talking about a rough, and I emphasize rough end strength, of approximately 1,400 men and very few women. All of these SF groups are overseen by the Army Special Forces Command at Fort Bragg. No, I will not use the current name for Fort Bragg. We will continue to use Fort Bragg at this podcast because I do not think it merits bowing and scraping before IED for inclusion, equity, and diversity and all the other woke nonsense that is permeating, and I would submit and suggest destroying the fighting power of the U.S. Army. So under USASOC currently, we have 1st Group, 3rd Group, 5th Group, 7th Group, 10th Group, 19th, and 20th Group, each of them with an additional assigned battalion, each of them with an additional group support battalion, and each of them with a chemical recon debt on all but the 19th and 20th Special Forces. Now, the basic element of these, of course, is the SFODA, the Special Forces Operational Detachment Alpha, which is the 10 to 12-man team that is assigned to do all the sexy stuff. And then, of course, you have the SF Operational Detachment Bravo, which is a company-level equivalency, maybe three to five ODAs, depending on the nature of the battalion they are assigned to in the SF group. That is commanded by a major because, of course, SF ODAs are commanded by a captain, a commissioned officer in SF, who is an 18 Alpha, which is the designator for an officer who is Special Forces qualified, who has gone through the SFQ course, graduated, been tabbed, maybe he went to the Ranger course by option before or after, and then he went to associated courses after that. And then, of course, there are 12 soldiers in each of these ODAs. All the members cross-train, and they're led by the 18 Alpha I mentioned, and a 180 Alpha, the assistant detachment commander, who's their second in command, usually a warrant officer. And that warrant officer corps is, is a 180, so they are special forces trained, and they can do that throughout their entire lifetimes in the service. Team also includes following listed soldiers, an 18 Zulu operations sergeant, team sergeant who is the fulcrum and center of gravity for the operations of that team, usually a master sergeant in E-8, an 18 Foxtrot, who is the assistant, assistant operations and intelligence sergeant, usually a sergeant first class, which is an E-7, and two each 18 Bravos, weapon sergeants, 18 Charlies, engineer sergeants, 18 Deltas, medical sergeants, and 18 Echoes, comm sergeants, usually sergeants first class in E-7, maybe staff sergeants, sergeants on occasion, especially with the new... 18x program where you can bring folks in who are not assessed after they've gotten their NCO street cred, but they are assessed right out of boot camp. I don't agree with that system. I know why they did it, because they were trying to populate a low-density 18 military occupational specialty that was finding it hard meeting their needs. But I think the very fact that this is an accession branch, which means that an SF1 has to be an NCO before you could become special forces, goes a very long way in making them the consummate professionals and so good at what they do and having the sterling reputation worldwide that they do. 
Now the organization can facilitate a six-man split team operation, much like two fire teams in a squad, and therefore there's redundancy in mentoring. Selection's tough. Embracing the suck is important. After one finishes that qualification course, every battalion will have a company that will be assigned with some subspecialties like military freefall, which is halo, hey-ho, which is high altitude, high opening or high altitude, low opening, depending on what the mission profile is. The combat diver qualification is available for the uh, combat swimmers. Uh, there's a special operations combat medic course, of course, and there's a sniper course. And there's courses out there that you can look up like Safartech and Sodic and things like that. Speaking of which, I don't have enough time in the day, nor in this podcast, nor in this episode to explain to you in detail all of these things. But there is a host, if not several hosts, of information out there in books, in articles, in essays, where whatever deep dive you want to go into in the particulars of vanilla special operations forces, special forces in the Army, for instance, and this this across the board, whether it's going to be Air Force Special Tactics Squadrons, Navy SEALs, Marine Raiders, whatever the case may be, the bandwidth constraints and time constraints I have on this podcast won't allow me to go into the detail that I'd really enjoy going into, but There are so many resources out there for folks if you're really interested in doing a deep dive on aspects of anything I've discussed so far. A sidebar, thanks Charles Briscoe and Special Forces Operator. The origin of the term operator in American Special Operations comes from the U.S. Army Special Forces. Renamed by many civilians as Green Berets, and you'll find that most folks who wear that particular headgear do not use that term for themselves. The Army SF was established in 1952, 10 years before the Navy SEALs and 25 years before Delta Force, CAG, whatever variation it is today, was founded in 77. Every other modern U.S. Special Operations Unit in the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines was established after 77. So in Waratas, Journal of Army Special Operations History, Mr. Briscoe states that the Army Special Forces did not misappropriate the appellation. Unbeknownst to most members of the Army Special Operations Force, RSOF community, that moniker was adopted by the Special Forces in the mid-1950s. He goes on to state that all qualified enlisted in officers and Special Forces had to voluntarily subscribe to the provisions of the Code of the Special Forces Operator and pledge themselves to its tenants by witnessed signature. This predates every other special operations unit that currently uses the term operator. Urge you to look that up and read that particular code. Very interesting history. By the way, coincident with the formation of SOCOM in the 80s, Special Operations Command, the Special Forces Branch was established as a basic branch of the United States Army on 9 April 1987 by the Department of Army General Order Number 35. Therefore, Unlike the previous time, starting in 1952, one could come in as an infantryman, mortarman, artillery, tanker, and you would have to maintain your currency qualification even as an SF operator in your origination branch in order to get promoted. That's why they changed that in 1987, so that Special Forces itself could become a competitive organization within whereby the operators would only compete against each other for promotion. 
Special Forces has for years had five primary mission sets. First one is unconventional warfare, which we're going to tear apart in detail. Direct action, foreign internal defense, which is the training of allied or coalition forces, both conventional and special forces, special operations forces in host nations. Special reconnaissance, which could also be called strategic reconnaissance on occasion, and counterterrorism. Counterterrorism and DA tend to get connected together, and most CT operations occur in a tier environment. That would be Tier 1, which is special missions units like the Army of Northern Virginia, Delta slash CAG, and organizations like that, which are outside the purview of this podcast, and Tier 2, which is made up of special operations forces. And one can say that Tier 3 would be all the conventional forces underneath that. All five of those mission sets, which can be augmented by other mission sets that appear on and off, such as weapons of mass destruction and exploration activities, and some other activities that involve embassies planet-wide that SOF has a special relationship with. And if one has seen movies like 13 Hours and and, um, those kind of films, you can see where that can probably stem from. Of those five, I would suggest that as a result of CAG and Delta, counterterrorism is done extraordinarily well by the U.S. when it comes to kinetic equations that have to be solved. I would also submit that the direct action where it comes to weapons up and the stuff that one may read in books or see in Hollyweird films and things like that, You will find operators with guns kicking in doors, shooting people in the face, and doing all the things in the dark of night that we have been almost habituated and acquainted with to such an extent where that's the thing that we assume all SF guys do, whether it is shipboard in some foreign country or whatever may be the case where they need guys with guns stacked up and available to conduct close quarters battle to close with the enemy and take them on. Now, mind you, as my friend John would tell us, Army Special Forces got drunk on direct action in the Middle East and Iraq and Afghanistan to the detriment and, I think, ultimate destruction of the other skill sets they brought that were so specialized to what made them so distinctive and expert in what they did as Special Forces troops. Because, mind you, a 0311 Infantry, infantrymen from the Marine Corps, a Ranger Regiment, NCO officer or EM, a Airborne Division or Air Assault Division troop, even troops from mechanized organizations and things like that in the, in, in the U.S. Army, despite the 1 to 10 to 1 to 14 tooth to tail ratio, which those are trigger pullers to logistics guys and everything in between that supports that trigger pillar and allows him to be the guy on the ground who does the kinetic actions, all of those things can be done by those other organizations, and SF doesn't have to do it. Is it fun to qualify on the weapons? Is it fun to go into the kill house? Is it fun to spend all the money and time and resources on being a better guy with a pistol and rifle? You better believe it. It is. I mean, I'm a gun guy, so I know about this, and I love it, but I do think that... They have trained to the tool to such an extent that they have bankrupted themselves of the capability of conducting unconventional warfare. We are going to talk about that 
in a few minutes. But the first thing I want to do, so that my audience members and listeners don't think that I'm just ragging on modern special forces, I want to say a few things, and that's this. I think that these are some of the keenest, smartest, and, of course, best-looking guys that I've ever had the privilege to work with, both in uniform and out of uniform. I spent almost a year in Afghanistan near the Uzbeki border training 5th and 10th Special Operations Kandaks. That's their special forces and commandos. And I had the privilege of working with ODAs and other organizations, always squared away troops, knew what they were doing, knew what they are about. And they come with some very special qualities that I haven't found in my acquaintance with those others in the Army or even the other services. Let me point a couple of those things out. I think that when it comes to mission planning, contingency planning, what we call military decision-making process in the Army, but they take it to the next level, there's something called the uh, GTA 31-01-003, and it's called the Special Forces Detachment Mission Planning Guide. This one happens to be from January 2020. I would highly recommend that all of my listeners get a copy of this because not only will this benefit you personally, this will benefit you professionally. And and you can use it in every facet of your lives because the process by which an ODA receives a mission that they have to go on, whether it's vanilla or darker. But let's just tackle vanilla for now. Let's suppose they're going on a foreign internal defense mission where they will leave 1st Special Forces Battalion and 1st Special Forces Group out of Okinawa to train Thai or Indonesian allied coalition forces in a permissive environment and teach them basic parachute operations, basic raid operations, basic um, conduct of weapons training, whatever the case may be. They will get the mission from the battalion commander, who just so happens to be the ODC which is the Operational Detachment Charlie, would be Battalion Command. Operational Detachment Bravo, as I intimated a little early, is that major who is a company-level equipment equivalent who has three to five, possibly more, three to five ODAs under his command. He does not command them, by the way. Once those ODAs deploy, he provides the beans and bullets, the logistical support, the administrative support, but not the OPCON. He is ADCON, Administrative Control, But the operational control falls on the ODC, the battalion commander. By the way, do you see where ODA, B, C, and of course we have ODD, which isn't group, that happens to be Delta. And that's where Delta adopted their their, um, force moniker. But nonetheless, when the ODC, the battalion commander, wants to send this ODA out, he gives them an intent and a mission statement. Then, depending on the time constraints, normally it's around 72 hours, that team will go into what's called an isolation facility. Now, the isolation facility isn't one where, of course, it's going to be comms deficient and and maybe they'll have some protections for MCON and things like that, but they'll still have access to computers and files and things like that, but a little bit more of a protected manner. And for 72 hours, they are able to concentrate on the brief back they will give the battalion commander, on how they're going to execute his mission. So all of these specialized functionalities, which I described earlier with the 18 Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta, Echo, Foxtrot, all of these different military occupational specialty specializations within special forces, 
spend 72 hours together under the team sergeant and the ODA commander of what they interpret the intent of the commander's mission to be, how they would accomplish that mission, what the contingencies are for that mission, and what they're going to do. 72 hours later, possibly on a shorter time fuse, uh, an earlier time than 72 hours, battalion commander returns, and the ODA conducts a brief back with them, and they say, sir, basically, this is how we interpret the mission that you gave us, and this is how we're going to execute the mission. Because a good leader in the military doesn't tell their subordinate commands how to do something. They tell them why it needs to be done with a clear and sufficient intent of what the end state has to look like. So once they've done that, they'll get their corrections, their nips and tucks from the commander. They will publish their final operations order, and they will move out and execute that, whether it's the next day or months from that time after they've set up all the various very complex transportation arrangements, building arrangements, and all the accoutrement and equipment and things like that that has to happen to move this 12-man ODA. By the way, 12 men, you hope so, but usually it's 10 because you always have the one-third rule here, which is one-third of folks are training, one-third of folks aren't available for administrative reasons, one-third of folks are available for execution, so sometimes they'll take guys from other teams, which is not the best idea, but it will suit for different mission sets, especially in wartime. So again, that would be GTA 31-01-003, the Special Forces Detachment Mission Planning Guide. It's, uh, it, it, I go to it all the time. I still go to it. I No, I don't have it on my nightstand, but I do have it in my profession that I'm in now as an engineer where I don't do any of this stuff and I don't deploy to war zones anymore or do any of that. And I still find it extraordinarily useful. And it, to me, it seems that only Army Special Forces would be able to come up with, I'm not going to call it a perfect document, but this really great document they put together on how to get your stuff squared away to execute simple and or complex missions well. The second thing I want to talk about is SF, Special Forces guys, the ones I've run across, and of course you're going to have left and, and right wings on a bell curve, but on the bell curve of excellence, that is the unconscious competence of the SF guys that I have run into and had the privilege of serving with, is that they were masters of the basics because there is nothing you do in your life in which your lack of mastery of the basics is going to allow you to get that unconscious competence at the intermediate and advanced level of whatever it is that you're going to do. You'll find this with gunfighting. You'll find this with marksmanship. You'll find this with training soldiers. You'll find this with having meetings in the corporate world. You'll find this with leading teams and projects in the corporate world. You'll find this all over the place. You must master the basics, and SF does that in spades. Third thing, these guys are selected. I don't think that they're always selected well because, of course, you're going to have bleeders who are going to come in who have no business donning that beret and, and donning the 18-series of executable requirements and the training that goes into that to do that kind of thing, but... One thing they're selected for, and, they, and SF somehow does a really good job of this, and I think Special Operations Forces 
in the U.S. military are fairly good at this. They're all about having focus on the now. Now, what do I mean about focus on the now? What it means is that once the two-way range starts or once a very difficult operation starts or once an operation starts and you're looking at your opsked, your operational schedule of what you have to achieve to get to your objective, and it's probably going to be a checklist and the commander may be going through that, you will find that when you read all the way back to Gothic Serpent and Black Hawk Down, all the way back to the original Eagle Claw in 7980, where we had the operation in Iran to rescue hostages, operation schedules were used. And what these opsgeds were, were a very detailed list of objects and characterizations of things that had to be accomplished line by line in a very linear fashion, or else one would have to abort. So they've mastered how to do that, but they've mastered it also by having a mindset that they inculcate in everybody there, which is that you must focus on the now, no matter how stressful and and sucky it may be, because talk about embracing the suck, which the infantry does very well and has done for millennia, is that these guys, when they are given a situation, because remember, for the most part, these are small teams practicing strategic compression which is achieving strategic results as a result of tactical actions and behavior and size and composition and disposition levels. These guys can do it because they're trained for it and they've been training for it. Their focus on the now, no matter how stressful in a combat situation, is better than most that I've seen. Now, I haven't had the most exposure to Ranger Regiment. A Ranger Regiment most of their combat power comes from 18 to 22-year-olds. And they do a really good job of keeping those guys in line because, as an aside, I have this notion when it comes to successful counterinsurgency, which, as those of you who have listened to this podcast, think is a very, very rare event. If one must conduct a counterinsurgency, I urge every leader on Earth never to even try to conduct one. But if, for some reason through either your incompetence, your cynical overreach, or whatever the case may be, you have men in the fray on the ground. One of the very worst things that you can do is to have any men on the ground who are under the age of 25 in a combat theater that is conducting counterinsurgency because those men don't have the maturity, unconscious competence, and willingness, and the embrasure of the suck where they will forego their own comforts in order to make sure that a mission occurs without having these rippling effects that will ripple across an entire theater. I think I mentioned in a previous episode about what happened when a sly young man coming up to 2010-2011 in one of the villes in Afghanistan thought it would be funny to take a Gatorade bottle and fill it with urine and give it to children in the village. One can imagine in a culture like Afghanistan, in an oral history environment like Afghanistan, and an Islamic country like Afghanistan, where generations know each other, whether they're holding grudges, holding friendships, holding alliances, whatever the case may be, that happen to cascade across the country like wildfire. That one instance of youthful, immature glee to see hold my beer had an effect across the entire theater that was enormously bad 
for operations on the ground. Another thing U.S. Army Special Forces does really well is Safartec and SODIC. Safartec is the Special Forces Advanced Reconnaissance Target Analysis and Exploitation Techniques course. And what it does is it teaches them combat weapons, marksmanship, CQB, explosive mechanical breaching, live weapons fire, you name it. When it comes to CQB and that particular envelope of engagement from zero to 500 meters, this is the place to go. And they do a terrific job. And Safartec, I think they may have been, I know they were required for a certain period of time. I think they were inspired by the sinks and extremist force companies that were within each SFG, especially the ones that were four deployed, like first the first and first the 10th. Then you have SODIC, which is the Special Operations Tactical Interdiction Course, which is the Long Range Sniper Course. Now, this isn't to say that this is the sniper course to attend. There are other ones. The Marine Scout Sniper Course is a tremendous suck festival, but they have shooters that come out of there that really know who they are about. Okay, this is the time in this particular podcast episode in which you may want to turn it off if you don't want to hear me start bagging on Special Forces and what it's about today, this one particular aspect. Special Forces was designed originally in 1952 to counter the Soviet threat by building up, equipping, training, stay behind partisan forces, fighting the Soviet Union, fighting the Warsaw Pact and such. And of course, when Vietnam came around, they started doing their roles, training, Montagnards, Hmong, Vietnamese soldiers, special operations forces, that's that kind of thing. And let me give you this preamble. So I mentioned in 2015, I had the privilege to be near the Uzbeki border in Afghanistan, embracing the suck on occasion, training those 5th and 10th Kandaks, which are basically battalions or battalions minus, of special forces, yes, Afghan A-teams, and commandos, sort of ranger-like, but nothing like the ranger regiment excellence that is practiced in the U.S. Army. Uh, I came to a very disturbing conclusion, and that would be this. Special forces, special operations forces, whether we're talking about the special forces that is the topic of the episode today, or the SEAL teams, or the Marine Raiders, or U.S. Air Force Special Tactics Squadrons, going up into the dark ranges of Delta and CAG and things like that, this is a first-world affluent world, I would say hyperpower, but I'll say a world superpower luxury to do this. Because the training, the pipelines, remember I told you that some of the the combat air control pipelines for the U.S. Air Force are three to four years long, to include pararescuemen at slightly less in the Air Force. The Air Force in the vanilla Special Operations Forces may have some of the longest training pipelines lasting up to four years of any of the services. And I do know through, through anecdotal evidence that MARSOC Raiders have a, a very long training pipeline too, where they do the very same thing. Not only do you have these long training pipelines in which you are trying to spend literally years to mold these special operations forces, but you're also creating organizations that have tremendous logistical footprints. 
Remember when I mentioned in a previous episode the bloody importance of U.S. Air Force Special Operations Squadrons? Because absent those, how could you transport all of these greatly trained, unconsciously competent super soldiers in SF and all the other respective organizations? How can you get them to the stage to conduct the very exquisite operations that they could do? You need the air transportation network, and in some cases, a an underwater or surface water transportation network, but it's the air that gets you there, whether you leave the aircraft before it lands or after it air lands, whatever the case may be. That's very expensive. It's extraordinarily expensive to maintain an Air Force. When you take a look at Air Force assets in the United States and with some of our coalition countries, and then you go to third world and developing countries and look at their air forces, maintaining maintaining air forces is very expensive. And then there's another thing here, and that's long loiter of professionalism by making these guys career heavy, where they are literally spending most of their entire young lives doing this. Very expensive. It's very expensive to attract the folks who happen to meet the qualification standards of becoming special operations forces. We described very briefly, one gets selected as a result of special forces assessment and selection into this. If you're not parachute qualified, you go to that three-week course and get parachute qualified. After that, you wait for your course slot in the SF qualification course to open up. After that, you go to a language course for the group that you may end up in. And after that, maybe you'll go to specialty courses like Halo and Hey-Ho and Scuba and some other ones. And then after that, you join your team. You arrive at a special forces group, whether forward deployed or one of the ones that's in CONUS proper. And you start your training to get your street cred, to get your certifications, to get the train-ups and make you the real deal when it comes to wearing that tab or tabs, Ranger, NSF, or just SF on your left shoulder to get the opportunity to get those right shoulder insignia. So I've gone on this lengthy side rant about how bloody expensive U.S. Special Forces and Special Operations Forces are, and they are very, very expensive as far as the budgets and all of that. Third world developing nations simply cannot afford it. So I'm over there in 2015 training these folks up, knowing that It will not happen to the degree or level of competency that they want, but I'm doing the mission that they pay us to do. They couldn't hold a candle to the operational excellence and unconscious competency that I would see in everyday SF soldiers, especially the seasoned ones, especially the ones who had been on respective teams for years at a time together. Now, every one of these SF teams, for the most part, barring special concentrations in, let's say, military freefall or combat diver. Just your ordinary SF guys who don't have that. Your ordinary SF guys who happen to be vanilla and haven't gone to a Tier 1 organization like CAG or the Army of Northern Virginia or some other SMU, a special special military unit, and, the, and there's dozens of them out there, but they're not things that we need to talk to in this podcast. If you're interested in that, I'm certain there are other folks out there who are far more cognizant, well-read, well-spoken, and articulate in talking about those because I simply don't want to talk about those on my particular podcast in a, in a specific way because there's other folks out there who know far more about it. Maybe they've lived it. Maybe they're scholars who have examined it. 
I have not taken the time to do so, which is simply why I tend to confine myself to the vanilla stuff. And then in the larger panoply of events, why COIN doesn't work, why special operations forces have such a hard time historically doing the things that they do. Because if there's one motif in this podcast, and there are several, but one motif I want you to keep in mind here is that the conduct of countering these insurgencies, whether Western or Eastern, is extraordinarily difficult, fraught with failure, and rarely brought to completion where these insurgencies are conquered, especially Islamic insurgencies, conquered by non-Islamic counterinsurgency organizations. So here's the bottom line. When it comes to direct action and counterterrorism, very close together, I don't think SF should have confined themselves to doing that and specializing in doing that and all the, uh, the, the incredible street cred you, do, you get from kicking down doors and, and doing the kind of work that CQB is. I get it. It's sexy. Maybe it's fun. Maybe it's something that, you know, you love having that skill set with a, with a rifle and a pistol. Hell, I know that when I uh, go to Bob Keller's courses every year, with uh, Gamma Resolutions, that guy is a stud, and he knows his way around a rifle, knows how to drive a rifle, and he has had such a positive influence on the marksmanship skills of my entire family. I'm forever grateful for that. So I get it that it's so attractive to do that, but what really set Special Forces, U.S. Army Special Forces, the Green Berets, apologies for using that phraseology, But what really set them apart was the fact that they were quiet professionals. These were the guys who would go, remember we talked about 1952 until Vietnam and parts of Vietnam with training the Hmong and training the Montagnards and training the Vietnamese in how to conduct their own special operations or at least to be fit enough to conduct them. That was not so much a form of unconventional warfare because that's always been an ambition and not something that's been done that was more of FID, foreign internal defense, where one goes into these environments. Remember, I use this terminology of permissive and non-permissive. A permissive environment is where I get an invitation from the Indonesian government to go in there and conduct three to five-week training courses on ambuscades, infantry tactics, airborne operations, airland operations, air assault operations. I go in there with my 10 to 12-man team. We conduct those operations in a permissive environment. A non-permissive environment is where you haven't been invited in. And when you do go in there, you are going to be in constant danger. And the difference between unconventional warfare, the raising of partisan forces, for instance, as a subset thereof, and foreign internal defense, is that it's very comfortable to do foreign internal defense. And these allied and coalition nations are usually extraordinarily gracious in accepting us to come into their countries and train their sometimes struggling, but always embrace the suck armed forces that they have to make them better than they are as a result of the guidance, mentorship, and coaching that SF and other organizations bring in to make their armed forces better. It's great. It's wonderful. And it's not hard, except from a logistical and training standpoint, because it's not a two-way range. The two-way ranges are the ones where you are conducting unconventional, unconventional warfare, which is a foreign internal defense in a non-permissive environment in which you are raising those partisan forces as both a force multiplier and your ability as the U.S., in this case, representative, to come in there and say, look, 
we've got the cash, we've got the pallets of weapons, we've got the pallets of ammunition, we've got the ISR capability, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance capability, both air breathing and non-air breathing, to let you know what the actionable intelligence picture looks like. A slight preamble. What is actionable intelligence? This is real simple. Information is that entire ocean of information you're surrounded by on a daily basis. Intelligence are the things that matter to your life, whether personal or professional. Actionable intelligence, personal or professional, are the things that you can address and execute on yourselves, the things you have control over. And in a professional sense, actionable intelligence is going to be, who am I going to hit? How many are going to be there? How is he protected? And does a sw door swing in or out? And if we're not going to go through the door, what part of the wall we're going to go through? And what's the construction of that wall? Are we going to make this on a multi-story building where we have to breach it from the roof down? Because you never want to breach a building if somebody's on the top from the bottom floor up. All of these things are taken into consideration. Now, if one is training that in a FID mission in which you're in a permissive environment and you've been invited by a host country, an allied or coalition member, that's all well and good. And it takes place in classroom, schoolroom, controlled situations. Not so much if you're engaged in a war. Now, there was a bright, shining time, a brief three months from October to December of 2001 in Afghanistan in which a small crew from 5th Special Forces Group went in there on horseback and went to the Northern Alliance, who were opposed to the Taliban, and they said what I just described, hey, pallets of cash, pallets of weapons, pallets of ammunition, ISR coverage, fuel, maybe fodder for your horses, whatever you need, we're going to ride into battle with you. Please don't pay attention to that awful movie that was made with one of my favorite actors about the horse soldiers because... It's sheer ahistorical garbage, but it's a very interesting story. I mean, there's a reason why it was the horse-born soldiers in that time. They were able to accomplish what they did and to secure that Northern Alliance relationship that led to so much goodness. Well, what happened? That three months, they were actually conducting... Eh, fit on steroids, maybe not so much unconventional warfare, but if unconventional warfare were merely the raising of partisan forces behind enemy lines to conduct offensive operations against an occupying country, maybe you could shoehorn that particular definition in there. But nonetheless, three months later, big army comes in, 82nd Airborne, 10th Mountain and everything, and everything in Afghanistan goes down from there because big army does not know how to conduct itself in the neo-colonial occupation duties that have been the hallmark of what America has done in Iraq, Afghanistan, lesser so in Yemen, Libya, Syria, and the Horn of Africa, where military disasters, small and large, have emerged over the last quarter century as a result of poor planning, bad foreign policy, and a willingness to do things that you're not willing to write the check for in the end to achieve what you set out to do because, by the way, they don't know what they want to do in the end. Because if you pulled one of these politicians, policymakers, or anybody aside and said, tell me this, so Afghanistan, Iraq, you fill in the blank. What is it that you need to do to achieve a government in power that is neutral or beneficial to the national security interests 
of the West and the United States in particular, no one on the ground in Iraq or Afghanistan could answer that question in a fashion that addressed through reverse planning what would have to be done from A to Z to reach the very point that I just asked about. None of them. So let's suppose one of them says, well, I want stay-behind forces behind enemy lines. You name the country, you name the tribes, whatever the case may be, where I want these Americans embedded with them, and I need them embedded not only for years, not only will they not rotate back to the United States, not only are they masters of the language and culture of the Islamic forces, because that's what we've been dealing with in the Middle East. You cannot go to Libya, Yemen, Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, Eritrea, Ethiopia, any of these places without having an Islamic intelligence quotient, whether it is Shia, Sunni, or some splinter group thereof. You simply can't do it. You have to be a master of Arabic, or you have to be a master of local dialect of Arabic. You have to have the stay-behind stability to be there for years, like I said, without rotating back to the west from that particular engagement. You can't go there for six weeks, six months, or even a little less than a year. Rotate out, new guys or team come in, you guys high-five, they take your place, and they carry on. That's great for FID, foreign internal defense, permissive environment, but non-permissive environments in which you are trying to raise those partisan forces, despite what special forces speaks to and talks about, and I'm not just bagging on Army special forces, I am bagging on the entire special operations forces modalities across the board in the United States, across the Western nations. I'm looking at you, Europe, with your allegedly first world armed forces. You guys have neither the capacity, the ambition, or the capability to do what I just described, and that is the only way to possibly, and I emphasize possibly, make a counterinsurgency work. And America doesn't have the capability to make that happen. So in the end, here's the bold statement that I'm going to make. I know I'm going to rub some of my SF brethren the wrong way when I say this, but not only our SF, and by the way, my brother SF guys, I'm not just calling you guys out, I'm calling out the entire establishment. You can't do unconventional warfare. You don't understand it. You don't even understand, as I mentioned in a previous podcast, how to counter unconventional warfare. As the historical evidence from the last quarter century, if not going back to 1945. And by the way, as far as Western colonial nations, because remember, one of the rifts that I've revved up on my episodes is that what we see in these small wars is nothing more than neo-colonial conflict. So for those of you who are out there who may at Thanksgiving dinner or something like that said, hey, how are special operations forces performing and how are they doing with counterinsurgency, stuff like that? Counterinsurgency isn't new. It's not new at all because governments, countries, coalitions, allies, Axis or allies, have been doing this for centuries. They have been doing this for millennia. For the most part, most folks didn't get it right. One thing the Romans did get right is they knew where demarcation lines were where they said, you know what, we're going to write that off as they did with the Germanic forest mountain areas up through the entire time of their reduction in the 5th century, 
They didn't mess with them. Eventually, as a matter of fact, they accommodated them in a fashion that allowed that 5th century downfall of the Roman Empire to occur as a result of either their lack of vigilance on that border or allowing the barbarians, as it were at the time, as they considered them. I don't think the barbarians thought of themselves as that. But these Germanic tribes, for for instance, who became actual Roman empires and important cogs in the Roman military machine, they never defeated them. They could never take them on. What they did do to a certain extent is they just managed to establish, in a very John Boydian fashion, alliances that would strengthen them and isolation of enemies that would strengthen their cards on the table against the Roman enemies. But nonetheless, let's fast forward back to now. So I would love to hear from any of my listeners or any challenges where someone um, rips their glove off their hand and uh, throws it at my feet figuratively and says, by your leave, sir, and says, oh, no, 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 we know how to do unconventional warfare. No, you don't. No, you can't, nor do you have the capacity to stand up, mobilize, lead partisan forces that far outnumber that 10 to 12-man team or whatever size U.S. or allied or coalition special forces complement may be on the ground at the time. You don't have the means, the method, nor the capability, nor the long loiter intention and promise that you will stay there to see this through. Because follow-through, as with shooting, it's very important. Follow-through is what lets you make the next shot in a more precise and accurate manner than you would if you didn't do follow-through. Follow-through is so important for this. Follow-through is important not only during the conflict, it's important before the conflict, but most importantly, that follow-through is after the conflict and cessation of hostilities, allegedly cessation of hostilities. You have to be able to come through with your promises. Otherwise, you will lose your legitimacy within the nation state that you are fighting. And I want to close with this from the Center for European Policy Analysis. Ugh, I don't like NATO. I don't like these think tanks. I don't like what they have to say. But Jan Kahlberg's article on November 29, 2023, titled Time to Radically Downsize the West Special Forces, makes a lot of really interesting points. Like most NATO and EU prognostications, they ask the right questions but tend to maneuver into the absolutely wrong answers. But nonetheless, I'm going to give Kahlberg his due. Quote, they do, of course, he's talking about soft here. They do, of course, have a role. The role they were once intended for, which is to support the main army's effort through deep strikes, intelligence gathering, or high-risk missions targeting high-value enemy assets. But they are not the lead actors in a large force-on-force war. End of quote. Kahlberg is speaking to near-peer and peer fighting and conflict, which is more and more real as every day passes in this century. And we thought for the longest time that those kind of conflicts were over, over, especially after being embroiled in these neo-colonial conflicts and counterinsurgency conflicts in the last quarter century. He goes on to say, quote, they are costly to train, retain, equip, and maintain, and should be because these units are tailored for highly qualified work, but a military perhaps four to five times more units than they 
likely need amounts to a significant waste of money and also risk. Why risk? The risk is that governments may believe that their special forces are crucial in a future conflict. Prioritizing these units and not paying enough attention to the need for greater numbers of regular maneuver units and their manning readiness and equipment to be able to execute large-scale military operations. He goes on, war is a practical business, and in the future of peer-on-peer conflict, today's force outline with large numbers of special forces is much like a toolbox with 20 screwdrivers, but no wrench. The wrench is represented by a sufficient number of maneuver battalions to stop an invasion, to retake terrain, to hold that terrain, and defend front lines that may be hundreds of miles long. That change in Western military thinking can tweak the trajectory of history before we find ourselves in trouble. I don't agree with all of Kahlberg's assertions in here, but I do think he's on to something when he says, let's force a reduction in the special operations forces across the board in the U.S., in NATO, and see where we come out at the end. I've identified in this episode what I find to be a fundamental, if not existential, shortcoming in the application of U.S. Army Special Forces, specifically, apologies for using the term, Green Berets, and not practicing the thing that makes them so bloody extraordinary, that ability, now a legendary and untested ability, to raise partisan forces in non-permissive environments behind enemy lines in a hostile conflict that is a two-way range to emerge on the enemy's flanks and rears of the threat to which the war is levied to give that kind of force multiplier the ability to strategically impact the course of a war. They talk about it, but talk is cheap, ambition is cheap, and they don't do it. So here is my simple but elegant suggestion. Throughout the entire podcast series of episodes so far, this is episode 30, thank you very much, listeners, I've sort of banged the table again and again and hammered home the point that you cannot show me a single instance of successful Western counterinsurgency, especially against Islamic insurgents, and I'm waiting for someone to prove me wrong. I'd be delighted if you provided me with the evidence to do so. But if you don't have an unconventional warfare capability and competency, especially at the unconscious level, especially at the policy level, especially where soup to nuts, horizontally, vertically, A to Z, this is wired in across the whole of government to conduct UW, which, of course, includes not only special operations forces, but hybrid operations, gray zone operations, information operations, MISO, propaganda, white propaganda, black propaganda, misinformation, desinformatia, the entire gamut of the conflict spectrum that is obvious and not so obvious, but with this one vital component, the practice of both unconventional warfare and countering unconventional warfare until the proper organizations, and I would put SF at the front, manage to tackle this to the ground, break the code, and make it an unconscious, competent means of doing their martial business, the world is a very dark place right now. The world is going to become increasingly darker. The world will face peer and near-peer conflicts. America and its allies in the 
what I would consider now shattered EU and NATO coalition as a result of the Russians defeating three, count them three, Ukrainian armies in the course of this special military operation. And now what we've seen occurring in the Middle East where we see the unfolding of Gaza and Israel and everything in between and what that's doing to realign the Islamic forces, where for the first time in maybe, well, certainly in my memory, if not institutional memory through the 20th century, Shia and Sunni enmity may lay their troubles down and agree to disagree and take on what they consider to be the primary threat against them, which is Israel and America's backing of Israel. Isn't it interesting how all of a sudden all the attention that was given to the Ukraine and Russia and all the monies, ammunition, capacities, capabilities, weapon systems and everything that have been poured into that country, all of a sudden squirrel were, divi- were diverted as a result of a 1,500-man operation conducted by Hamas in Gaza that I will predict and forecast has changed the course of conflict in the Middle East, whether you like it or not. So again, I emphasize, if the United States military doesn't capitalize on the ability to conduct unconventional warfare and to counter unconventional warfare in a fashion that is rational, repeatable, and trainable, it will continue not to succeed at its special operations counterinsurgency methods here and well into the future. This is Bill. Thanks for uh, listening, comments, critiques, anything you may have, cgpodcast at pm.me. That is cgpodcast at pm.me. I wanted to express my utmost appreciation to folks who have reached out to me with kind words and support. And thanks again. This is Bill out.